I offended the young man quite unintentionally. By the way, Inspector, how do you plan to spend the evening? I attend Rotary Club uh, banquet here at hotel. Good, then you'll be here for some time. Terribly possible. Very few after-dinner speeches equipped with the self-stopper. <laughs> I may have a very important message for you tonight. What message? Would you be surprised if I should ask you to arrest the murderer? No. All foxes come at last to first door. What murderer? No, I mustn't say too much. That is many a slip. You quench fire on my curiosity with a handful of straw. No clue. What? Took long ride on streetcar. Nothing. Kashimo, do me a favor. Yes. Spend more time hunting for nothing to do. You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 209, and I'm your host, Lee. Most cannot cast shadow like Elephant Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Sometimes mistakes Bumblebee for Blackberry Harper. How are you doing, sir? That I, I actually, that was one I kind of liked. That was one I kind of liked. Uh, you know, insofar you can like any of the racist pigeon speak <laughs> from 1931, but, you know, I like it. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got a couple films here. Uh, one of them doesn't hold up very well. <laughs> we'll <just put> it, <laughs> and the other that. one is the front page. Yes. <laughs> You're curious. <laughs> uh, you, you, know, you know a film has lost me when I start Googling the history of Hawaii instead of watching the <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't know they're on fucking Hawaii. Well, at least, yeah, anyway, we can get into that. Yeah. yeah, we're going to be covering, we're, we're back in the 30s, yeah. so that's, that's fun. In case anyone missed it on the Facebook group, we did say we were going to be doing animal crackers, but we couldn't source it in time for us to, you know, set our plans into motion and, and actually do something, so we just, we switched to these two it films. Was, it was slightly more annoying to source than we wanted it to be, to to get, to, to match our production schedule, and so we just went, no, fuck it, we'll do it next time, it's fine, yeah. or down the line, we'll do it in a year or two it'll be there, I promise. A, a day or so after we put our plans in place to do these two, I got, like, two people like, I got it, I can send it to you. <laughs> I was like, fuck. <laughs> All right, well, we can, I was like, well, I could buy the DVD and rip it and get it to Lee, and it would be fine, but also, like, you know, ugh. 
Yeah. You know, the second it's like we can skip. It's fine. There are so many more movies to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so we got a few uh comments and stuff to get through here first. So we had two videos sent to us. Uh one was sent by uh Robert Ward who when we were back in our initial uh, little look at the silent stuff, he was sending some interesting videos almost every week and uh, he sent a new one. It's another one of these cleanup jobs from some old footage from the uh 19-teens and it's what 1913 in 1915 Tokyo or something like that. It's like just filming the goings-on in the streets of Tokyo, Japan. And they've got it all cleaned up. they got it colorized. they got the fake background sound put in for sort of ambiance or whatever. But yeah, another interesting little uh, little slice of history there sort of restored. Yeah. I, I was amazed by the one guy who was carrying his entire shop on his back walking around i was like wow that guy probably didn't have back problems later (laughs) (laughs) nobody really lived that long you know it was japan in 1915 you know it's a thing no um yeah i mean i always love these it's it's one of those things where you kind of look and go well like clearly it's colorized and like kind of artificial and you know but it also gives us a sense of you know kind of what this like would have actually looked like and it gives us a more kind of emotional immediacy to, to mm-hmm. these things. And so I think there is a there is a value to this stuff. You know? Yeah. As long as the original footage in its original state is not lost. You right. Know? As long as that doesn't become like the replacement thing. But I, I do I, I do really admire that. And obviously these are like technical marvels. Uh, as yeah. Well. Yeah. Thanks for that, Robert. And then uh, Peter Theobald, who's been commenting a lot on our uh, YouTube videos as of late, actually sent me an email uh, just sharing with me a video of Alex Cox for something I, I can't remember what it's what it's for for some show or something. Uh, basically introducing his film Walker, and kind of you know he, he sort of admits yet yeah, like this film didn't do very well, but I really like it. Here's a review from from some newspaper or whatever, and you know he just kind of he kind of reads his critics and sort of laughs at it a little bit, and it's like yeah, fair enough, whatever uh, kind of thing. <laughs> You gotta get a cute bit of sense of humor when you're, especially when you're like an indie cult director. You know, mm-hmm. kind of be like, yeah, you know, there's some guy with a big stack of money who gave me a tiny bit of that stack of money to do my passion project, and so therefore I get to keep working for another two years. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. No, that and was so, good. Yeah. That was good, Peter. Thanks. And uh, we we will do Walker at some point. Uh, it, it just made me want to watch it more. So uh, yeah. Yeah. More Alice Cox always. More Cox. Mm-hmm plan we're all about the cocks on this podcast yeah yeah, well, yeah. So you can steal that sound bite uh <laughs> court psyops or somebody if you want to. Our, our, our many enemies our many enemies yeah, <laughs> yeah. whatever you know go for sh- it go shows for up it. on the daily show or whatever who cares um <laughs> that would be really amusing yeah. I would I would definitely clip that. We can, uh, we can play on the show. Yeah. We have a couple YouTube comments here. One good, one bad. So uh, first from Shadowman4710, who uh, comments quite a bit. He commented on our Q&A episode. And mm-hmm. He says, yeah, I remember this one being better than it actually is. Largely due, I think, to Nick Nolte's absolutely stunning performance as the maniac corrupt cop. The rest of it is, well, you guys covered its flaws. Not a film I'd go back to look at, all things being equal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Nolte's good. I mean, there's some good stuff in it. I mean, I think it's got its heart in the right place, but, you know, it's just, I don't know, the, the 1990-ness of it just kind of, you know, just jumps out at you pretty quickly. You know, it's it's so trying hard to be like, 
the grittier version of Miami Vice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Shadow Man. And uh, we have someone called Renee Johnson on our Cherry 2000 Radioactive Dreams uh, episode, which is just a popular one. Yeah. Well, Cherry 2000 is kind of hard to find. Yeah. You kind of know where to look for it. I think that drives it. So is it where's the movie? Why don't you just play the movie instead of talking? (laughs) (laughs) Touche. Torrent it like the rest of us. Come on. Yeah, come on. Like, Rare Lust, just go there and and, and grab it. You know, like, just just fuck off. Like, (laughs) nobody wants to do any work for anything anymore. It's just terrible where rare less should pay us to like rare like whoever runs rare less should really like you know pay us for uh, you know uh, we should be running rare list ads and be doing this professionally for rare list. definitely i mean i mean if, if if people are not aware of rare lust at this point you know by listening to this podcast like <laughs> I mean, how can you listen to this podcast for more than like four episodes and not go rare list is a place i need to go you know i mean they're they're our unofficial sponsor basically i mean if they were mm-hmm. If they were an alcoholic beverage, we'd be drinking tons of it every fucking episode. Let's. Yes. <laughs> um, so we can move on to what we've watched lately, and uh, I'll throw it over to you first, there, Daniel. Sure, I called. Um, you know, one. I mean, a movie I've kind of always been wanting to watch, and uh, showed up on Netflix, and it's The Social Network. That's the David Fincher film from 2010, which I missed when it was in theaters because my wife didn't really want to see it. Mm-hmm. And I completely missed ever seeing it in the 10 years since. And uh, <laughs> I watched it, and uh, God, it's weird. I don't know. Have you seen The Social Network? I haven't seen it. Coincidentally, a good friend of mine on, on Facebook was like, yeah, me and my uh, girlfriend just watched The Social Network. And man, if you didn't hate Zuckerberg before, you're really going to fucking hate him after watching this. Well, And the irony is that like 2010 is sort of like the, you know, it's like Facebook is cool in 2010. It's kind of the new thing. Mm-hmm. And and now like 10 years later as well, you know, and now fa- Facebook is the place where your racist uncle goes to like <laughs> learn how to do a race war. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, you know, Facebook at the time was kind of this like, I joined Facebook in like 2007 because my the woman who's now my wife was on there and like that was where she had i was like and we met online and she was like oh yeah um you know, we've got photos you're on facebook i'm like oh, facebook i've heard of it what is it and uh, she's like well uh, i got a bunch of fa- i got a bunch of pictures on facebook i'm like okay mm-hmm. so i joined facebook literally to put some photos of myself so that my wife my now wife could see them and to see photos of her and um boy what a hell sight that is <laughs> you know yeah. Uh, the movie is, I don't know, I think it's worth seeing. I think it's its interesting kind of more as like kind of a cultural artifact of that moment mm-hmm. than anything else. It's got a brilliant score. It's kind of the first time that uh, Atticus Ross worked with Trent Reznor. I think that was oh. the first time that they did a film score together. And I have been kind of re-listening to that score, like kind of on YouTube while I've been doing other stuff. Um, that's really good. And I think, I mean, this one is David Fincher. So, of course, it's like super well made. It knows what it's doing. Written by Aaron Sorkin. So it's got all the Aaron Sorkin kind of bullshit all over it, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, interesting film. I don't know. I feel like I, I kind of need to like watch it again and kind of think about it some more. Maybe have a... I might be covering this on as a movie episode on the other on I Don't Speak German at some point because it does have some interesting things to say about sort of, I mean, talking about like kind of how social media has infected our lives and talk about this kind of cultural artifact of the moment. It's kind of hard for me to like jokingly before we do our other movies, just kind of sum it up. Uh, it's yeah. an interesting film. And if you haven't seen it, I would, I would recommend people watch it. 
It's not a bad film. It's kind of a myopic film in a lot of ways. And in some ways that were kind of would have been known at the time. And in some ways that are kind of only relevant in, in retrospect. Um, but, but yeah, worth, uh, worth seeing. I mean, the one thing is that the, the, the guy who wrote the novel that the script is based on also wrote bringing down the house, which is the book that uh, the movie 21 is based on, oh, yeah. which is about like card counting uh, kids from MIT. Mm-hmm. And if you read kind of the reviews of that book, it's like, well, there are a bunch of composite characters and things didn't really happen this way. And it seems like there's a lot of that kind of backstory going on with the, um, the, the book that the social network is based on as well, because the book is the accidental billionaires. And it's so the one person that was interviewed for that was, uh, this guy Eduardo Severin, who right. was uh, Zuckerberg's roommate, and who sort of like provided the early startup money, which was like nineteen thousand dollars that went into Facebook. You know, kind of in that super super early uh, time period, mm-hmm. and gets like cut out of the company. But it does seem like if you kind of read between the lines, there's some there's a lot of stuff that's sort of missing from that as well. But it's not like the story of Facebook, but it is kind of an interesting kind of movie, regardless. Sort of mirrors what is it? Uh, the the Bill Gates sort of story as well, kind of idea. In, oh, in, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. No, there's a really good movie called Pirates of Silicon Valley, which that's I what I was thinking of actually. Movie, yeah, which is actually pretty good. Um, that one actually was based on a book and apparently actually tells that story in a pretty complete way. Um, that's one I've been meaning to revisit at some point. I don't know when we get to the '90s again, maybe we'll do Pirates of Silicon Valley because right. that one actually is pretty interesting. Um, Ooh. I saw that when it was like originally out. I'm that kind of nerd, so. You know. <laughs> the one I'll mention uh, this week, I watched The Enemy Below from 1957. It is a Robert Mitchum, Kurt Jurgens, uh, submarine versus battleship movie. Um, <laughs> nice. And it's really fucking good. Color of movie from 1957. The whole idea is Robert Mitchum just got off of, like, leave after... Uh, you know, being the the lieutenant commander of like a, a ship that got torpedoed or whatever, and now he's taking over this new uh, ship, and uh, they they run into a U boat, and then they start playing this cat and mouse game with this U boat in the South Atlantic. And the interesting thing here, the interesting trivia point from this is that Star Trek totally ripped this off for one of their famous episodes, the one where the Enterprise and a Romulan warbird sort of do this cat and mouse game around the neutral Mm. zone. And they actually like directly rip off sequences and stuff in Star Trek from this film. Oh, interesting. Interesting, Yeah. And it's, yeah, you should put that on the list. I would, yeah, no, we should do that. Yeah. And it's really good. Like, uh, just Robert Mitchum, you know, I, I guess his personal problems kind of like sidelined his career a lot of times. Like he's sort of back and forth every once in a while. He, from leading man to just doing like bit parts and stuff like that. But here he just, he just walks into this and he just like swaggers all over this fucking thing. But in his kind of weird reserved way, which is just, yeah, that's a cool motherfucker. And it's really tense. It's really well done. It looks beautiful. Just highly recommend it. It's going on my best of list uh, for this year. Oh, awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, no, we should definitely we should definitely do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... That's... I, feel, I, feel, I feel like there's... Do you have anything else to mention before we move into the movies? Mm-mm. 
I feel like, you know, there is one, we don't really do this anymore, kind of talk about, like, people that died, but Ennio Morricone. Oh, I mean, I'm glad you reminded me of that. I'll, I'll let you finish your thought there in a sec, but uh, I was going to mention that uh, the next Blood on the Tracks, I was right in the middle of a Spaghetti Western series, and Ennio Morricone dies, and, well, you better believe the next episode's just going to be all Ennio Morricone. Right. So, yeah. I listen to Morricone, like, almost every day I listen to some Morricone. It's just, you know, it's like the soundtrack of my life. It's like, you know... Mm-hmm. You know, it's either Nazis yelling about the Jews or, uh, you know, any of Marconi. That's kind of, you know, what I'm listening to on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. I don't know. I just felt like uh, I just wanted to mention it. Just it's so he's such a like a big, important figure in, in terms of, you know, you know, Leone is Leone, but Leone wouldn't be Leone without Marconi. Right. And Marconi is so much bigger than even Leone in that yep. way. Like made an entire like spaghetti Westerns just wouldn't be the thing that they are without him. You know, and he had this whole career other than that. I mean, he had a whole, I mean, he's 91, I think, when he died and uh, mm-hmm. had this long career before and after and was working up until, I mean, I think his last film was, I mean, he did original work for Hateful Eight. Yep. He apparently hated the process, but he did it <laughs> and it's brilliant. So, you know, like, good for you, Ennio Morricone. Sorry, you didn't like working with Tarantino, but, you know, it's a thing. And um, I don't know. It was just kind of one of those, like, I really just wanted to mention, like, that, that sucks. You know, I mean, he lived a long life. He was a legend in his own time. No, I mean, you can't ask for a better life than that in some ways. But yeah, yeah, it sucks. It that one hit me a little bit. You know, yeah, no, same here. It's it's one of those guys where you you don't ever expect to like hear that he died. Like it's just it's just kind yeah. of you know. Um, and then he, and he's that good. And I mean, there is no way to really there's there's no hyperbole or like overstatement when it comes to his work. Like it's just really that good. He's literally one of the few, if not the only guy who really made both a score and and the visuals in a film one thing yeah. where they, they connect together in your mind and, and they're just one thing. Like Once Upon a Time in the West, the way he can, combines his music with Leone's visuals, it just becomes one sort of entity on its own and and you can't separate them. Like they're they're in they're, it, it's yeah. not just, you know, it's not just plugging in cool music like you know, if, if anything, if there's any like criticism for Tarantino using Morricone's music, it's like he's, and, and even then, it, it's kind of a hollow criticism. But you know, like just plugging in cool Morricone tracks over you know like cool Tarantino stuff, right. it, it, there's still a bit of a separation there. But when when you're looking at like the stuff Morricone did with Leone and some other directors here and there throughout his career, it's like you you can't disconnect the two things. Like they're they're just they're in yeah, I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West is a score that I listen to on a regular basis, just independently. And, you know, seeing it with, I mean, the movie doesn't exist outside of like that score. Like, it's just, yeah. you know, it, it just is. I know a lot of people really love the, uh, like, the, the Clint Eastwood trilogy, the Man with No Name trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's always Once Upon a Time in the West. And uh, my all-time favorite track and Possibly my favorite piece of music of all time is uh, Lorena from uh, uh, El Mercenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I mentioned when we did that film, um, but that's a that's a track that uh, you know I would <laughs> again. I probably listen to that like every every few days. I'll put that on for you know, five minutes. It's it's it really is one of those that just uh, means a lot to me. And um, goodbye, uh, Mr. Marconi. I'm sorry I never got to tell you how much i loved your work but like obviously you knew um you had a bunch of fans out there so. yeah you had millions of just fools like us who 
probably came up to you every day fucking saying that shit. So yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you, you had, you had like literally like 70 years of it. <laughs> so <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Finally some peace. People tell yeah. me how great I am. <laughs> Although unfortunately, I guess he, I guess he died after complications from like a fall and broke his leg or some shit, which is just like, it's, oh. it's, I mean, it sucks. It's just yeah. one of those things, but you know, yeah, no, but yeah, I just thought I just wanted us to mention it, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rest in peace. So we're gonna take a, a quick break, play some podcast promos, a little bit of music, and we're gonna come back and talk about the Black Camel. Broadcasting from the cursed earth, the Psycho Semanticast. Let us face without panic the reality of our time, the fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. The neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew them. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast.
Camel from 1931. Uh, this is directed by Hamilton McFadden, uh, who was an actor, writer, and director who did several of these uh, early Charlie Chan films for Fox. He was signed as a director by Fox from about 1930 to 1934, but his contract was not renewed after the merger with uh, Xanax uh, 20th Century Productions, which you know became 20th Century Fox, after which McFadden appeared as an actor in small film roles until the mid-40s. Uh, so he, he sort of just did acting bits after this for the most part. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Written by Earl D. Biggers, or it's basically based on his uh, novels. He did the Charlie Chan series. Oh. He based it on an actual Honolulu uh, detective, I believe. Yep, yep. Who was, who was, you know, this uh, Chinese detective in Honolulu. From reading on it, he did some kind of impressive stuff in his career. He's like a previous, he was a previous uh, Chang Apana, who was mm. a Chinese, uh, I think Chinese uh, Hawaiian. And he was one of the original members of the Honolulu Police Department. First an officer, then as a detective. Sorry, I'm just kind of looking at his Wikipedia page. Um, his uh, given name was Chang, Chang Ping. And then it was Hawaiianized to Apana. Um, yeah. And then he was like an early like uh, Hawaiian cowboy <laughs> in like the 1880s and 1890s. And then becomes one of the original like police force, which was basically getting the cattle rustlers or whatever, I guess. It's like, it it's like kind of like a, like a guy, you know, and then Hawaiian cowboys. That's wow. So as I, as I said, as I said, I was not a big fan of this film. It was kind of a slog to get through. Yeah, and so I had it kind of going on one screen and watching it, but also like reading Ching Ah Ping's story, far more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I was watching a movie about this guy um, rather than watching the movie I was actually watching. So I didn't, uh, I didn't realize there was actually Hawaiian cowboys. They yeah, they were like... apparently called Paniolos. Um, wow. Yeah, no, I mean it's sort of one of those like. Uh, sorry, I'm just kind of looking at it now. The Vaqueros of California, Mexico. And uh, it's a Hawaiianized pronunciation of the word Espanol. Um, huh. And so you're, you're looking at sort of this late period of like the Hawaiian. Um, so late 19th, early 20th. This actually plays into the film just a little bit, you know, in the sense of you kind of have to understand this history of like how this is like this place. I mean, Hawaii was a it was a stop for like sugar, sugar plantation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it became this kind of place in the late 18th century. It was a pre-existing kingdom since like the 11th century or something like that, when the first kind of Polynesian settlers kind of landed on Hawaii and they built a settlement in what is now Honolulu. Mm -hmm. 
but it was this kind of like Westerners kind of discovered it and turned it into this like sugar plantation, um, enslaving the natives effectively because yep. that's what the Europeans did. Um, <laughs> but it was this kind of isolated thing, but it was this kind of like way station among like all these because it's sort of centrally located in the Pacific Ocean. And so you get like kind of Chinese settlers, you got kind of native Hawaiians, you got Europeans right. kind of coming in, and it becomes this kind of place where everybody's kind of mixing it becomes this kind of mixed cultures but it was this kind of independent kingdom up until the late 18th up until the late 19th century at which time some locals quote unquote uh, deposed the queen and then set up their own king and then the king was deposed or something like that oh, yeah. and it becomes like republic of hawaii for like <laughs> 20 years until uh, it becomes an annexation of the united states becomes a territory and then in the late 50s it becomes the state of hawaii and so during the period where the film is set it's a territory of hawaii and when i say um some locals in quotes um it came out very quickly that uh no it was totally americans it was americans instigating all this america it was american imperialism that's what happened so yeah uh <laughs> free hawaii is kind of what we're saying here yeah. should not be a state should be should be its own uh, independent thing but um, yeah, at least we got a really terrible movie out of it. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, also, that's also, so I was reading that instead of uh, instead of watching the film to a certain degree. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Also written by Hugh Stanislaus Strange or St- Stange actually, uh, Barry Connors, Philip Klein, and Dudley Nichols. Some of these people just have like dialogue credits right. or whatever. But you know, and like I looked at these guys and like they all had sort of like, you know, little respectable careers. Most of them, strangely enough, seem to like died within a few years of this film. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of, you know, like even the, even the guy, uh, Chang Apana died just a couple of years after this film was made. Um, he apparently got to uh, like meet like the director and everything, you know, like he, he mm-hmm. got to like see the film being made and then like died two years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, great. <laughs> cursed. Cursed. Yeah. <laughs> So it's starring Warner Oland as Inspector Charlie Chan. Uh, this is a Swedish American who made a career out of playing Asian characters in Yellowface. He yep. did 16 Charlie Chan films. This was sort of like the tail end of his career because he was also apparently a notorious alcoholic and and he had a lot of health problems. So he died like at age 58. Uh, and like his, his last films were all Charlie Chan stuff. But he also played uh, Fu Manchu and stuff like that earlier than this. So mm-hmm. so he was like their go-to Asian guy. Asian guy he in quotations. Will, he will be a guest uh, guest star on a film that we do here in a few weeks, I think. Right. Got, I was, yep. So, yeah. yeah, I was looking at it too. Yeah, true. Star, it's also starring Sally uh, Ellers as Julie O'Neill. Bella Lugosi here before he stars in Dracula as Tarnevo. Or Tarn- yeah, it's Tarn- the same Tarnevero. This was released before Dracula, though. Yeah, I believe it was. Uh, this, okay. like, it was it was filmed in the same year, but uh, this was just before he sort of took off like a fucking rocket ship with Dracula. Right. So, yeah. yeah, Dorothy uh, Revere as Sheila Fane, Victor Varconi as Robert Fife, Murray Kinnell as Archie Smith, William Prost Jr. as Alan Janes, Robert Young as Jimmy Bradshaw, uh, Violet Dunn as Anna. J.M. Kerrigan as Thomas McMasters, Mary Gordon as Mrs. McMasters, uh, Rita Rosella as Luna, uh, or Luana, and uh, oh my god, this this guy, um, Otto uh, Yamoka as Kashimo, and my god. <laughs> if you thought 
the Swedish American playing the Chinese lead, speaking in Chinese, quote unquote, Ching Chang talk aphorisms. <laughs> and uh, if you thought that was the most racist thing in the film, you were wrong. Wow. You were so wrong. <laughs> you were so wrong. You were so wrong. <laughs> Moving on here, synopsis from someone called Sister Grimm from IMDb says, uh, movie star Sheila Thane is seeing wealthy Alan Janes while filming in Honolulu, Hawaii, but won't marry him without consulting famed psychic Tenevero first. Tenevero confronts her about the unsolved murder of fellow film star Denny Mayo three years earlier, and she just decides to reject Jane's proposal. When Sheila is found shot to death, well, she's not shot to death in her beachfront pavilion, she's stabbed, actually. Uh, Charlie Chan of the Honolulu Police investigates. And yeah, that's kind of the bare bones of this. If you... I, feel, I feel like a lot of the synopses basically stop at the first 20 minutes. I yeah. Think that's all they really watch is this film. You know? I, I mean, I, I can't blame them for not knowing whether they were shot or stabbed. It's just like, yeah. It's... yeah. Well, and, and how, did you, how did you watch this? Did you watch this on YouTube? I did watch it on YouTube. There's a couple versions. The one I watched was obviously like a blue, blue lay, uh, blue, fucking Christ, Blu-ray rip. And oh my god, am I starting to like fucking talk and like racist fucking Chinese? Please Japanese? tell me that's not what's happening here. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, no, so you may have found a, a better quality version than I did because like the version that I watched was like blocky as fuck. It was oh, like almost you know. Like, I was uh, there was a version on YouTube that was a hundred and like forty one minutes. It was one of those things where they start the film and then it. Yep. to the end and oh no no actually i watched that's not true i uh that was the shitty version actually was the one the like the hundred and some minute one the one yeah. i watched was uh just an hour or 10 minutes it was it was perfectly fine it was like clear as fuck uh, so oh wow i i would actually like to watch the clear version apparently i didn't look hard enough for the gift the good quality version of it but um, I clicked around. I found like four different versions of it, and they all looked like shit. So I just found the one that looked the least like shit, and I went <laughs> with it. Uh, so, so what did you think of the the visuals? Did you like because people like kind of reviews of the time seemed to think, oh, they shot this in Honolulu. It looks pretty good. It's got like you know, like that seemed to be a lot of the draw was kind of Honolulu visuals. It's... And I got like none of that in my experience. Its locations do help it a lot. Not only you get like the visuals, but uh, obviously when they're filming sound, they're they're getting a lot of the background sound of just Hawaii itself, and that kind of works for it. But it's nothing special at the same time. Like it's it's a very, I mean, this is low budget. Like this is the same as like a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stuff we watched, you know, from the right, same period, right? 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 It very uh, churn these things out really super quick kind of idea. But it's it's competently done. It, it looks fine in the cleaned up version that I watched. Uh, I got no complaints as far as that goes. But at the same time, uh, the film we're going to do after this, in comparison, it's wow. You can you, you can, you can see, difference. yeah, yeah. It, it's not even it's not even a comparison. Um, not even you know, even kind of giving it every benefit of the doubt from the blockiest fuck version that I watched. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a very different kind of thing. I mean, I think the problem for me is like, okay, a the racism. Mm-hmm. It's almost not even worth mentioning how racist. I mean, it l- literally is like Charlie Chan. First of all, he's named Charlie Chan. Yeah. Like, you can't get past that, right? Little, <laughs> and this is supposed to be sort of like the challenge to the institutional racism. It's of supposed- like playing yes. Chinese characters as being kind of like villains, and the way you do that is well, he's a hero, but he still speaks in the like. 
sometimes even wise man uh, mistakes bumblebee for raspberry or whatever. It's still, <laughs> it's still all the it's still all the fucking broken English. It's yeah, yeah. he's he's very subservient, and then yep. uh, but you know at the same time he has autonomy. He's you know he's playing these people. He's he's manipulating these these people. But that comes out in the sort of idea of like oh these sneaky Chinese you know you know kind of right. idea. And, like, it's and like it, we're gonna play into all of it. We're gonna it's like you know we're gonna make it. We're gonna like challenge racism against African Americans, and we're gonna make an African American hero. From the hood and like yeah. grew up on the streets. He has a mixtape that he made, but it's like a really good one. And <laughs> you know, like it's no, it's, it it, you know, it, boil, it boils down to Charlie Chan is one of the good ones. That's what it yeah, is. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, he's one of the Chinese that the Caucasians could have accept because you know he he's polite and he doesn't you know overstep his bounds. That's the idea here. Right. And it's and apparently they had tried to make sort of versions of this, like sort of like these kinds of characters previously with East Asian actors, and like audiences just didn't buy it until you put like a Swedish American in yellow face in there. You know? There were two early silent serials where this character first appeared. Yeah. And he was actually played by uh in, in these two occasions by Japanese actors, but both of those serials are totally lost. Uh Host Without a Key and the Chinese Parrot, apparently, are both lost serials yeah. from the and, uh, silent and, era. And apparently of the first five of these uh films mm-hmm. with uh, with William Oland, or apparently Warner Oland, um, this is the only one that survives. And I yeah. think that's like I kinda it kinda came up on the thing and like, oh yeah, we should definitely watch this and, and review it. Um if you notice, audience, uh, we are not really going to talk about the details of the plot here because I couldn't follow it. Like I, I pulled up, uh, I pulled up like sort of like synopses and tried to. I sort of get what's going on. Like I can sort of follow. It becomes this like super convoluted plot where right. this guy claims he did it, and then this one says, "No, I witnessed the killing of that person," and there are a couple of dead movie stars involved. And then at the end, it ends up like, "Oh, it was the maid all along." And um, then the butler tries to kill Charlie Chan because uh, he lives in love with the maid. Yeah. It's that kind of plot. It means nothing. Like it's just it. It really is just a bunch of kind of people running around. Um, the one character I liked was the uh, homeless guy Smith. Um, yeah, yeah. He was pretty cool. You know, it's like you know. Yeah, I'm gonna go. Um, yeah, you, if you need to find me, you can find me at uh, the Sandy Beach right over there. That's that's where I live. He's so, just yeah. he's just like a British expat who's like living in Hawaii and he's down on his luck. He had to sell his watch to get some food to, yep. you know, and, and he's, he's romancing this like native girl basically. And, you know, and, and just kind of lying to her and kind of using her for, uh, for room and board basically. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and he's actually the most interesting character in the whole film. Yeah. I kind of want to see his movie, honestly. <laughs> yeah. he seems a lot more interesting. And then like he gets, he gets shot and dies Yeah, because like he, he knew a little bit too much or something. Yeah. No, it mm-hmm. was, uh, it's definitely like, he was kind of like, Oh yeah, no, this guy, I kind of, I kind of, you know, can we, can we follow this guy around? He seems a lot more interesting than whatever bullshit we've got going on here. It is like the racism actually makes it both more and less interesting because I was kind of like, Oh, it'll be like super racist. And that'll give us sort of a, at least an angle to sort of like approach this and try to reevaluate it. I mean, again, doing the story of like Chang Apana and kind of like telling like his real story, I think would make a really interesting film. Mm-hmm. And even doing this kind of Charlie Chan character, like if you cast an actual like Chinese Hawaiian, you know, character actor who, 
you know, could could kind of play some of these story and kind of play it as a real person. Yeah. What would be really interesting is like play it in period as like he's a real person who has to play up the stereotype, right? As a way of kind of going in white society, you know, <laughs> which is it's so overt. The, the pigeon speak is so bad that that's the angle I thought they were going for. You were going to then see him like talk to his buddy and be like, check out the rubes. Like, yeah, but like, it, it, it's never that the only way this person, he speaks to his family in this, like, right. in this talk. Like, it's like, and of, Jesus course he's, Christ. and of course he's got a family where he's got like 10 kids. They're breeding right. like rats, you know, like, you know. yeah. Yeah. You know what those ant hip, ant heaps of East Asia are like? You know, yeah, exactly. And uh, oh my God, there's even a there's there's even a fucking bad Asian driver joke in this with him. Like, oh it's just, I just learned to drive. I just learned to drive, and then now, now I turn. The road turns with me. It's yeah. fine. It's, it's, it's fucking Christ. Can you lean into like ever like you could have completely skipped that scene? There was yep. no reason to include that, and you just had to like, man, like it's amazing. There's a lot of scenes they could have skipped here. There's thirty minutes of plot at the most. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. It is kind of one of those where like we do kind of expect, you know. I think in, de- in detective films, like from a modern perspective, we sort of have the idea that five minutes setting up the crime, then like the cop's going to show up and we're going to kind of watch the cop do the thing. Yeah. Here, it's more like he kind of fades into the film kind of halfway through and then kind of becomes the lead. And I mean, certainly like as racist as the portrayal is, once he's sort of like the lead character, at least we've got like something to kind of hold on to. But all these fucking like rich movie stars and shit, it's just. There's nothing. It's all just like petty bullshit. Yeah, like it's nothing. Yeah, no. So also, you get on this film very few Hawaiians actually on the screen. Like we we have one right. scene with a girls' choir or whatever, like singing a traditional song, and that's about it. <laughs> right. I was just watching this, and and then I mean, his assistant, who is this Japanese guy, who is just the worst. It, it's it's actually played by a Japanese actor, but it's the yeah. worst fucking Japanese stereotype you could hope to find. My God, he's he's portrayed as half mentally disabled. Remember, remember that scene from Crash, which is a terrible movie. All right, mm-hmm. remember Tony Danza, and he's having a chat with like the director of the film within the film that Tony Danza's in. And he's like, "Look, can you make him like more black? You know what I mean? Like more black? Like I feel like there was somebody like that kind of standing around and being like, no, he needs to be like more Chinese.' Well, actually, the actor is Japanese. No, 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 no." don't care more chinese that's what we need more chinese by which we mean like can you literally have him like with a gong to like bang it's oh my god yeah it's, it's, it's pretty awful it's, it's so pretty bad awful. it's so bad yeah. uh if, if anything i'll say you, you can see why lugosi became a big star in this like yeah. he's actually really good and i mean he's he's just it's early in his career, but he's so slumming here. Like, it's just like, oh my God, why are you even in this other than you probably had to be by contract? I mean, or something. It's a paycheck, it's a contract, yeah. it's a thing. And these were, these were, I mean, they made a bunch of these with like three actors over the course of like 15 years well, or this, something. This series. Um, this guy dies really soon. And then the next guy who takes over the role, another white guy, dies 
after he does like 10 of these over five years yeah. and, and then they they have a third actor who kind of takes on the role they had a couple so, of movies they usually popular movies you know they had a, like a movie in the 70s and the 80s too still white guys uh, peter ustinov mm-hmm. played charlie chan for fuck's sakes Jesus and ever since then nothing because i think you know actually time kind of cut caught up with this concept yeah mm-hmm. we're not doing that shit anymore apparently um Last I saw, I think Lucy Liu tried to get something going with a Charlie Chan series at some point or a movie, but that never happened. And, you know, I mean, at that point, you would think they would at least fucking hire a Chinese person to play the character. But- well, and Lucy Liu is like some kind of like gender swapped kind of version of this. Uh, actually, I don't know. Is Lucy, Lucy Liu, is she Chinese? I don't know if she's Chinese or not. Uh... Yeah, I feel I feel racist for even asking that, but you know, <laughs> I just know she has freckles and she's hot. That's I'm, I'm well, sad you know, say. I've watched Payback a few times. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, man, this it, they they just kept having white guys play this character, and it's it's uh, pathetic. It, it really well, she is. She actually pathetic. is Chinese. She actually is Chinese. Oh, okay, there we go. Yeah, parents were from Beijing, Beijing and Shanghai. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, Lucy Liu is like a gender swapped like Charlie Chan, you know. I'm on board. I can buy, I'm on board with that, sure. And she's already, now, I mean, she's, yeah, she's like 52 or something now. So, yeah, yeah, but she's got, you know, she's got the uh, detective street cred at this point with the elementary series, which is, yeah, really no, that's, good. What, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think she, yeah. would, be, she would be great. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Make that yeah. Hollywood, Please watch it. <laughs> Yeah, don't make this don't anymore. Do Asian driving driving jokes. Yeah, know? don't do that. Don't fucking do don't that. Don't ever do these stupid aphorisms. And uh, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, but uh, anyway, that movie's bad. Don't watch it. We'll yeah. Uh, moving on to trivia here because uh, actually we covered all the trivia for this basically, so um, <laughs> we can just. We had nothing to say, so we just did the trivia. Needless to say, this this film is not going to be on anyone's best of list this year. No. It's, it's not uh, even like it's not like I was saying. I'm thinking like it'll be really racist and bad, and it'll be bad in an interesting way that's worth talking about. But it's not even bad in an interesting way. It's banal. just it's just deeply stupid. Yeah. You know, like anyway. Yeah. Just found a newspaper article about uh, Changapana from yeah. 1904. Oh, Apana, the Chinese policeman, made a record for himself last night. He caught 40 Chinese gambling in an upstairs room on Smith Street. Although four doors and four watchmen barred his way, a clever disguise gained him admittance and the jig was up. Apana, like other members of the raiding force at the police station, is now so well known that it is impossible for him to go anywhere at night in Chinatown undisguised without Chinese raising the cry of cop. The Chinese have posted various men whose business is to know by sight every known police officer and informer to watch the entrance to gambling resorts and on the approach of the police raise the alarm in time. Upon a wore a native hat, a pair of black glasses, and a Chinese coat. Then he blacked his upper lip sufficiently to give the impression that he needed to shave badly and started raiding. He passed four doors of the entrance to the Smith Street Resort and went in the gaming room, watched the progress of the game for a moment or two before being recognized. Forty men were arrested and will be dealt with today by Judge Lindsay. Oh my God, apparently he literally was only carrying a bullwhip and arrested that, I, I Yeah, I saw that story. He, he fucking, yeah, he just used a bullwhip to keep them all at bay, basically, while the backup it's, game. You know, like, this, this, you know, like, fuck the cops, but, you know, like, that's mm-hmm. a, 
That's a story. Yeah, you should st- actually you should include this little bit and put it in the podcast because that's way better than anything in that fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break. The front page from 1931, directed by Lewis uh, Milestone, who directed Two Arabian Nights from 1927, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front from 1930, you might have heard of that one, and Ocean's Eleven from 1960 was one of his uh, later period films. You might have heard of that one, too. Not the George Clooney one, obviously. No, no, no. Uh, Although at that point, I guess um, he had some trouble with the, uh, you know, the... uh, an American fucking <laughs> Joe, Joseph McCarthy decided to fuck him over just a little bit, you know. That's the uh, appara- yeah. Apparently, uh, the whole Rat Pack treated him very coldly on the set of that of Ocean's yeah, Eleven. Yeah, apparently, yeah, so. but- by the time he made this film, he was already a two-time Academy Award-winning director. So. Yeah, <laughs> we're on a, a little bit of a step up in quality from the film we just covered. In case teeny bit, a teeny bit. 
Yeah. yeah, and this is this is a Howard Hughes uh, film company or whatever whatever his production mm-hmm. company was, and I guess he gave Milestone just full reign with this. So uh, yeah, no uh, writers uh, Ben Hetched, who uh, has done one film we've cre- uh, actually two films we've uh, done before, uh, Kiss of Death and Stagecoach. Although uh, mm-hmm. interesting here, a lot of the people on this, most of their credits are like uncredited uh, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was like uncredited for Stagecoach, uncredited for Gone with the Wind. We also have Charles MacArthur who did Freaks, which we're probably going to be covering. We'll do uh, next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bartlett uh, Cormack and Charles Letterer, and two of these writers, I think it's Hetched and Cormack, were uh, the ones who wrote the stage play that this is based on. I, th- I think that makes sense. Yeah, and and they I mean, were very clearly a stage play. Like, I mean, I knew it was a stage play, but you don't have to know that. You just watch and go, yeah, this is stage play. <laughs> yeah. And I guess they were like, you know, journalists before they started writing here. And so they based a lot of the characters and stuff on what they saw when they were journalists. Uh, so we got uh, Eldolf uh, Minju as uh, Walter Burns, uh, Pat O'Brien as Hildy Johnson, Mary Bryan as Peggy Grant, Edward Everett Horton as Roy B. Uh, Bensinger, Walter Cartlett or Catlett as Murphy. George E. Stone as Earl Williams, May Clark as Molly Molly, <laughs> Molly Malloy, Malloy. Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah, we'll uh, be uh, hitting her again pretty soon as well. So, yeah. yeah, Slim Somerville as Irving uh, Pincus, Matt Morris Kruger, Frank McHugh as McHugh, uh, Clarence Wilson as Sheriff Hartman, Fred Howard as Schwartz, and Phil Teat as Wilson. And synopsis here from Gary Jackson on IMDb. Hildy Johnson, uh, and I thought Hildy was like a woman's name more than anything else. I guess I've never heard well, a man called Hildy before. Oh, the reason you think that is because uh, this was remade in 1939 as His Girl Friday, uh, right. which is also on our list, and that one had uh, Rosalind uh, Franklin as Hildy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this is the original version, and then and then the Rosalind Franklin version ends up being the. Um, or the good version, <laughs> not that this one isn't good, but you know that ends up being the like the the kind of the classic. So, okay. Uh, but uh, Hildy Johnson, newspaper reporter, is engaged to Peggy Grant and planning to move to New York for a higher paying advertising job. The court press room is full of lame reporters who invent stories as much as write them. All are waiting to cover the hanging of Earl Williams. When Williams escapes from the inept sheriff, Hildy seizes the opportunity by using his $260 honeymoon money to pay off an insider and get the scoop on the escape. However, Walter Burns, the Post editor, is slow to repay Hildy back, hoping that he will stay on the story. Getting a major scoop looks possible when Hildy stumbles into a bewildered escapee and hides him in a roll-top desk in the press room. Burns shows up to help, can they keep Williams' whereabouts secret long enough to get the scoop, especially with the sheriff and other reporters hovering around? Yeah, okay, kind of. That's kind of what goes on. Yeah. But. I mean, that's basic structure. Uh, also, it was Rosalind Russell, excuse me. So, uh, oh, okay. What do you think of this? Uh, this is uh, this is fucking really good. I mean, uh-huh. it's just it's, it's a night and day difference from uh, you know uh, significantly less racism. I'm not saying there's no racism. Uh, there's a little bit of you know, sorry for the language, a little bit of talk of pickaninnies. Pickaninnies, uh, yeah, yep, no. Uh, so not no racism, but you know, for 1931, you know, we'll break on a curve. Uh, you know, it's also um, you got a lot. This is kind of 
one of the earliest of the screwball comedies, as I understand, like kind of one of the you know, see a lot of uh, people say it's like the first almost like. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically you have to have sound to be a screwball comedy because you've got to do that. You've got to be able to do dialogue. You've got to be able to do dialogue in this way. Yeah, it has yes. to be you know, understandable. Um, it's, and it and it is like it's 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 written and edited to within an inch of its life. There's basically no fat on this at all. Mm-hmm. I was struck by kind of watching this. It really seems like like prestige television, like Netflix, should do a lot more screwball comedy like series. Like I would really love to see instead of like dumb sitcoms i'd rather see like some sort of like screwball shit kind of going on i feel mm-hmm. like it really could be something that could be revived for modern audiences who would really kind of get into it i, I think that's sort of what some like community is kind of leaning in that direction you know mm-hmm. sort of sort of thing like doing that super fast paced kind of quippy stuff no this is this is this is really 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 good <laughs> i love that uh you know it does have a political angle just because uh you know the the murderer is yeah, he murdered a cop, but maybe he didn't. And there's there's some ambiguity there about kind of what's going on. But the governor is sort of like you know kind of forcing this execution as a way of kind of get, gaining his his reelection, which is happening in just a few days. You know, so there's there's this kind of red scare menace, and this is like right around that time. I mean, <laughs> you know, when we run into um, when we run into the the stone, um, Earl Williams plays his character. Pardon me. Earl Williams is the uh, is the uh, is the guy. He's played by George Stone, and uh, when we run into him, his his line is like, "They call me a Bolshevik, and I'm really an anarchist." And it's like, <laughs> "Oh my god!" <laughs> Left Twitter, yeah, it was such. A, like, I don't know. It was such a like moment for me. I was just a lot of like, "Yeah, no." He'd be like, "The press, they call me a Bolshevik, but really, I'm an anarchist, dude." I feel you. I feel you, man. I'm totally- there's definitely some nice parallels to today on this i love the dialogue i love the again the quickness of it i love the um the portrayal of the newsroom of where you know this is literally like a newsroom like kind of a pr office in the prison all these guys from like competing news agencies are all kind of fighting for the scoop (laughs) and because at this time what they would do is like write their stories and then like call it in on the phones and so they have like a row of phones and so you get everybody's little version of the story as it's kind of going out and you get the way that all these different like press outlets would spin it as they had their own kind of little bit of mm-hmm. information and everything and you really get a sense of like who these characters are and how like these stories were all spin and how this kind of yellow journalism worked at this time it's really clever stuff i mean it's, it's I was... just like it's so it's so effective at kind of evoking this moment all these like rumpled newspapermen just wandering around in their, you know, in their kind of rumpled suits and their like broken hats and everything. I don't know. It's like it's it's so just kind of glorious start to finish. They're all it's just kind of pure entertainment, you know. Yeah, they're all like uh, cynical smartasses and stuff too. And those are like kind of the best scenes when you're in this uh, reporter's room or whatever. This sort of this little press dive. And mm-hmm. I was just watching. So like this is a this is a perfect premise for. Uh, you know, like a quality sitcom from the late 1970s, early 1980s or something like, like this is, this is like something that would work alongside WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. You know, all these characters are well-defined. Like you get the hypochondriac who is like, <laughs> he wants, wants them to clean the room and oh, don't touch me. He's like, there's so many germs in, in your human mouth. And he's like constantly like chugging Listerine and like, <laughs> he's got an old style fucking, pump sprayer to spray like disinfectant mm-hmm. and shit in the air and 
<laughs> and it's in his desk that they uh, like hide the guy. Yeah. <laughs> he shows up and is like, "No, no, you've got to, you've got to go. You got to get the, you got to get some Listerine to like disinfect your your thing." You know, it's a, yeah, it's 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 clever stuff. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of back and forth like that. I, I, you're right. There are kind of a lot of like really cool uh, kind of you know slightly one note, but you know within the confines of this kind of context, like it, it works perfectly fine. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, the, these are all just sort of vehicles to shoot off this witty dialogue anyway and honestly Mm -hmm. maybe that's my it's both one of the biggest attractions to this and also one of the biggest sort of uh detractions for this for me is that that stuff's so good that it kind of just drowns out the sort of political social angles that are actually in this oh yeah no there's there's a there's a very clear kind of political angle to this, and there's a very clear kind of you know like, but but I feel like what the comedy does is this kind of like radical politics and this sort of like radical idea of how mm-hmm. we're going to sort of approach this, and and it, and it sort of like slicks it in underneath the underneath the audience's nose a little bit, you know, yeah. because really you're just kind of sitting and you're just kind of enjoying the the process of loving these characters quip at each other, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I also really loved Meg Clark as Molly Malloy. She's kind of like the She's- sister with the heart of gold. She's yep. like the girlfriend of Walter Burns. So Walter Burns is like the newspaper editor. Yeah. <laughs> he's like dating you know, this prostitute. I mean, it is like there is something. This is a pre-code film, you know. Yep. So, so uh, um, they were allowed. They got away with a lot of shit in this movie. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, and and that's a lot of what like the pre-code era. You know, um, that's a lot of what people uh, are kind of attracted to in this in this in this kind of era. And I think the front page is kind of one of those really top-notch. Uh, movies from from this that, that people really kind of look back on fondly is like no this is what could have been done until and then the Hayes code comes in and just like crushes all crushes all yeah this. and this this must have been uh like this is just coming out of the silent era this must have been a shock to the system for people watching oh, this yeah. like who had never seen a talkie before because this is like a talkie on speed. Like it's, it, it, I mean, the talkie era was four years old, and so it's not like people. I mean, you know, I don't think that you could say people were still. Uh, I, I don't know though. Like, are, would they be used to this? Because I, I mean, I, this level of it, this level of it is definitely extreme. Like, because like, I, you know, uh, even I, for modern audiences, I think you put a lot of like, you know audiences in 2020 in front of something like this and it's like man that moves fast it's got a lot going on i mean you compare this to the black camel which is an unfair comparison to be yeah yeah as bad as a black camel is you know like it's unfair to like compare them directly but that's a film that it really waltzes in and kind of like has the and it reiterates the points of like who these characters are like four times and it's only 70 minutes long but man, it drags. Like it, it feels really, two hours. You know, but that's a film that sort of feel. That's a film that's sort of like paced for like kind of an audience at that time. You know, yep. this is one where it's like I mean, you miss one line of dialogue and you're kind of lost just a little bit. But it carries you along because you kind of get who the characters are and it, and it right draw, and it draws these characters so concretely where even if you're not quite sure what's kind of happening in any given moment, even if you miss some of the details of it, you're still carried along with sort of the logic of how the movie is going. Like there's always something happening that's sort of driving the action of like, yeah. well, we got to hide this guy. We got to find this guy. We got to, you know, find the thing. Whereas like there's a little murder mystery happening in the black camel. And you and I didn't even bother to talk about it because it's so like ineffectual within the context of the movie. Like no. there's just no there there, you know, it's like, it, it, Oh, there's a diamond in her shoe. 
which apparently she didn't notice for the last year. Well, no, she had a, she had a pin from the brooch in her shoe. Like she stepped on it. And (laughs) in that, in that movie, you can't wait for it to be over. Basically. Like you don't care what the resolution is. You just want it to be over this. You're actually like interested right to the end. You're like, Oh, what's going to happen? You know, like, uh, you, you kind of get the feeling it, it's all going to turn out for the for the best because it's it's got that sort of jovial tone throughout the entire thing, but at the same time it just keeps you going. It's just that dialogue just snap 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 snap. What are they going to say next? Some people will say you know these these old films that are comedies and stuff that the jokes don't play. They fucking play. I was laughing yeah, no, at this film. I, this I thought it was fucking good. funny. The fucking. Yeah. The fucking scene where the the guy comes in with the tickets for all the reporters to go to the hanging. <laughs> yeah. he, he, and I mean that's some dark shit, right? That's some yes. dark fucking shit. But the, <laughs> the the motherfucker with this motherfucker with the banjo. <laughs> he, you you see, he's not on screen. He's, he's out of frame. The banjo comes into frame. He's holding it out for the guy to drop the tickets into so he can take the tickets. And I just fucking started laughing. I was like, holy shit, that's fucking hilarious. I mean, you gotta, I mean, you gotta watch it to, to full get the full context. And I mean, this is this is on my best of list for this year. Um, yeah, no, no. I think I think this this I think this makes it for sure. Um, yeah, uh, you gotta see this, guys. It is fucking I think it's hilarious. I think it's a fucking hilarious film. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, really fucking good. And uh, again, like it, it was re- it's been remade a, a few times. Yeah, um, there's sort of a gender swap version in 1940 in His Girl Friday, which I put on the list, and hopefully we'll cover here in mm-hmm. three months or whatever. And then it was remade in 1974 with uh, Matthew and Lemon as yep. uh, as the front page, um, and that's the version that most people have seen. There's also the uh, there's also the switching channels 1988 with Burt Reynolds and Kathleen Turner and Christopher Reeve, which you know hey <laughs> maybe that version's pretty good too maybe it's all right I, I can actually imagine like Ryan Johnson making a pretty good version of this like I uh, mm-hmm. rewatched Knives Out recently and I'm like yeah Ryan Johnson you know like if you're if you kind of remember if you if you've seen Knives Out and you're kind of like oh, yeah that was good um, this is that but like back in 1931. <laughs> And yeah, it's no, really that's good. yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. If they, if they wanted to do this again, I mean, they don't really need to, but if they wanted to, that's kind of who I think could best do this material, and you know, and and make it work for a modern audience. Not not that I think this doesn't work for a modern audience. I mean, like I said, watch it. I mean, the jokes they pop, they still pop. It, it's it's funny. Like it, it's not one of these films where you got to like cringe all the time, you know, where it's like. Oh, that really racist joke. Okay, I'll overlook it. You know, like it, it's got a little teeny bit of that, but it's actually pretty fucking squeaky clean compared to most shit from this era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's got the again the quote unquote the pickaninny stuff, and it's mm. got a little bit of that kind of stuff going on. But you know, which we're not defending, but at the same time, like for 1931, yeah. And I mean, that's having just watched the fucking Charlie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> like once you get through that, you're kind of like, well. As long as it's not literally like joking about like hanging black people or something, we're probably okay. Yeah. I mean Wow. And I, I gotta say too, like, even though, you know, this is a comedy, the opening credits, like you get this really noirish 
kind of start with the, like yeah. they're they're preparing the gallows and stuff. It's like, oh shit, this is good. And this is where you start getting the cool camera movements. They just they just went overboard with the look how fucking cool we can be with this camera. Like there's that oh, one yeah. shot. Yeah. There's that one shot where it goes around the fucking reporter's table while the guy is talking to him and stuff. And yeah, this is great stuff. Yeah, this this is just night and day from those B pictures, the Charlie Chan B pictures that you see, where you're not going to see a camera movement at all. It's all just going to be like straight setups and shit, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, um, I'd love to kind of see a like a documentary about uh, the the like the technical production of this because you know we're still early enough in sound like. Were they using a boom mic or is like, do they have like microphones like kind of cleverly hidden around? Like, kind of how, I mean, just the technical details of how they were dealing mm-hmm. with sound this early in the sound era, I think would be a really interesting uh, question to, to ask. And uh, obviously, you need, like, we see now with like action films, is like, you know, CGI is good enough that you can like remove guide wires and stuff. And so yep. you can do kind of like really impressive real stunts by like, setting up really sophisticated like rigs and then just removing all the safety equipment digitally, yeah. you know? And so the technology allows us to make better films, you know? And I feel like here, what we're seeing is sound technology got good enough that suddenly you could do really sophisticated stuff with dialogue. You could start to kind of really play this kind of game and then just edit the fuck out of it and get it like this tight. And, uh, you know, and I, I do think that there is a sense in which the, the writing and the artistry of the kind of the filmmaking and the technology are all kind of like working on like parallel tracks and it all has to work seamlessly together or like the movie is nonsense, but yeah, this is a real triumph and um, yeah, check it and watch this. And it's the public domain. You could download. I mean, this is, this is super easy to get like, you know, it is. Yeah. Uh, Although we should get into uh, the trivia here. So, um, Continuing the practice uh, common to the silent era, the film was shot with three cameras at the same time. So this created three different negatives, and the best negative was used for the U.S. version. Second best was used for the U.K. version. And the final negative was used for general international version, which is just hilarious. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I read that, I was like, What? what? They did that? What? <laughs> so they filmed it? Like, so, like, there's a... So there's a UK version from a slightly different angle where every shot is from a slightly different angle. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so also additionally, some scenes were reshot with different dialogue for the international markets. After the film fell into public domain, all the distributed prints were made from the lower quality international negative. The preferred US negative fell into obscurity in 2016, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences premiered a newly restored copy of the original U.S. negative, which had not seen general distribution for several decades. Picture and sound quality of this restored print is the far superior in most previously available versions of the film. I'll just mention the DVD stuff here. Uh, uh, Kino Lober uh, Blu-ray from 2017 and a uh, Criterion Blu-ray from 2017 there's also the uh, Criterion His Girl Friday Blu-ray that actually has this film as a supplement, but that's actually a different version than the standalone Criterion Blu-ray. So um, I, I don't so know that's which... Probably from the, that's probably from the public domain print. Because okay. the version that's on Amazon Prime, I glanced at it and it looked really shitty. So I went to YouTube and like this is available in a few places on YouTube and the YouTube version looks phenomenal. Um, the great. one thing I did, it didn't have subtitles. That was the one um, that's always a sticking point. If I can get subtitles, I always want to have subtitles. Right. But, 
the uh, the the version on Amazon was so shitty, and so I'm assuming that was from that kind of original print. That's the essentially the public domain print, and hasn't been cleaned up. No, this is one um, I'd probably buy this Blu-ray, or you know, I'd probably buy this. I think this is definitely worth it. It's it's phenomenal stuff. It I I consider it a find, just like. Uh where when we did the apartment and I was like, just amazed by that, where I considered that like a fucking fine, like that, that's it's, it's one of the, like, this is one where, like you said, there's been several versions afterwards where they're better known. People shouldn't overlook this one. It's, it's really fucking good, especially for 1931. Like you're looking at, you're looking at like the fucking cutting edge of production here. For 1931, yeah, I think. I mean, I've seen, um, I've seen. I mean, years ago, I saw the 74 version. Kind of looked into this and kind of knew this existed, and kind of like, oh yeah, that'll should go on our list. This will be kind of an interesting thing for us to cover. Had no idea it was going to be this good. Like yeah. this is, I mean, it, it kind of blew me away a little bit. So um, yeah. Uh, just one last little trivia thing here. Uh, the reason for a tin can hanging over the entrance of the room just off the press room is that when the MPPDA objected to the explicit portrayal of a toilet on screen, the producers hung up a can to signify the entrance to the can or bathroom. So even though it's pre-code, there was still a little bit of, you know... uh, You can have a hooker with a heart of gold. You can do your Bolshevik bullshit. Better not imagine that these people ever take a shit. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of went up to to psycho you know be, you know before yeah. before psycho when you know, actually you could see a toilet being flushed on screen or whatever you know <laughs> so, that's that's what I like that's what I want to see in movies like I, I don't actually necessarily want to watch a person take a shit on screen and that's that's fine I don't need to see that but I want to know that they do take shits and I want to see a person at a bar actually order a drink and fucking drink it too like it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you order a drink, you take two sips, and then you like wander off and do the plot. No, no, sit, enjoy your drink. They don't even I take sips. Like, I watch you drink your drink. Five minutes. I just want to sit, watch you sit at a bar and drink your drink and enjoy. It. I, I bet you some obsessive compulsive motherfucker went to every movie ever made and like did a percent like where someone takes a drink at a bar or just orders a drink at a bar. They would find that like about ninety five percent of them don't even drink the fucking drink. They just order the drink and then it moves to the next scene. It's like let's get the fuck out of here. And then they, they yeah, they there's there's like so so you order the drink. Is the drink delivered? Is kind of the next step. Yeah. Do they drink any of the drink at all? Or like I can imagine like one sip versus like two or three sips. You know, like uh-huh. sort of like. And then do they finish the drink? It's sort of the end of the story. And like the number of movies, I think you're right. The number of movies in which a drink is finished, even if you like, you imagine like something like, uh, like, um, um, Shaun of the dead or like the world's end, which are movies kind of about drinking. Yeah. And so they see like kind of the end of a drink, you know, quite a bit, you know, I'm okay. That's good. You know, you finish a drink. It's great. You don't necessarily have to sit and watch like a five minute process for people like drink a whole fucking drink. But, uh, you know, certainly in, like, date movies and stuff, you know, or, like, kind of where we're hanging out in the bar, you can at least have people, like, sit and enjoy their drink. I mean, yeah. the, the challenge of that is always kind of in, in terms of the process of production, like, keeping the, like, levels of the liquid uh, consistent is always the problem. So, right. You know. So how about you just have be talented enough to do it in one shot and fucking one take and then not fuck up? 
But you know, maybe yeah, well, it's also one of those things where CG is your friend. You know, you just yeah. you know, you just CG, you just CG the beer back in the glass. You know, it's fine. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what are we doing next week? Freaks. Let's do freaks. Just, just freaks. Let's do freaks. Yeah, yeah. freaks. I think is is uh, big enough. We can do that one by itself. I think it deserves it. Yeah. Um, I was actually looking at the list. Um, I think I think freaks next week. Just kind of do it by itself, and uh, you know, give ourselves a little bit of a break from having to do the uh, <laughs> the process of. Man, it was tough to get through that Charlie Chan movie. I almost just sent you <laughs> event, like, let's just fuck it. I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, you know, um, yeah, no, I think freaks will be freaks will be a fun one to do. Um, yeah, I kind of looked at the other like 1931 films, and I want to just move on to 1932, and I have a strategy for how to to how to take this, and I think we'll do like I think we'll do at least like three episodes in 1932. Yeah, because um, we got a bunch of films from 32. So that's what I was thinking. I was like, I was looking at that year, and then the next, and I was like, wow, we we actually could just like spend the next, like the rest of the summer into the fall just just covering that shit just, so. in, just in 32 to like yeah. 32 to 34 <laughs> like there's a ton of great shit um, so yeah i think that's the plan yeah uh okay so uh daniel where can people find you on the interwebs i'm on twitter at daniel lee harper come find me there um i am also i do a podcast called Unless with german it's about terrible people the things they believe it's about nazis um one of whom was recently doxxed. Maybe yeah. he has threatened my life. So I'm very happy that his name is now out there. And um, yeah. But other than that, uh, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Uh, you cannot find me on Twitter currently because <laughs> I'm still banned from, still suspended somehow. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny that you're banned from Twitter and I'm not. Like that's one of those yeah. things where like Nazis would report me all day long if I gave them like the slightest reason. <laughs> and so like the fact that you're banned and I'm not just speaks to um, you know I'm a pussy. That's what that means. <laughs> I, I, I think I think I I. I just get too much joy, like actually attacking the Nazis in your mention. And I think right. that's what got me the strike. I see that happening. I see that happening. And I'm just kind of like, good for you, Lee. Probably not the best option for, you know, sorry. I don't, I don't need Twitter. I don't need it. Yeah. Um, but I'll eventually I'll get it back. I'm, I'm like halfway there. Like my, my, my account is slightly back, but crippled. It's like, you can't do anything with it, but you can like see your wall again or whatever. It's like, yeah. okay. Whatever. Uh, but you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our Apple podcast, Facebook, and YouTube links. Join the Facebook group. Best way to get in touch with us. Uh, find out what's coming up on the podcast and, you know, give movie suggestions, criticisms, all that good stuff. And just interact with us. And, you know, you got cool stuff you want to share on the wall. Just post it there like Robert Ward would do, you know. And, uh, okay. yeah. Uh, it, it's a good time. Uh, you know, not not it's not a super big podcast group. I mean, actually I think our listening audience has like gone down strangely <laughs> enough in this pandemic. Like usually I, we're getting like around a hundred listens within like a week and a half or so. Now we're like averaging around 50 to 60 in a week and a half or so. I think, I think people aren't, um, aren't commuting in the same way. And so I think that that causes it. Yeah. Mm. Apparently a lot of people listen to us when they're taking long drives <laughs> or when they're at work. I mean, if they're not working, I don't know. Like it's, I don't know. We love, we love all you listeners. I mean, yeah. Lee and I would do this. This is the thing I, I always say. Like Lee and I would kind of do this regardless. 
if we weren't recording the podcast, we would probably like watch a movie and sit and drink a beer and talk. <laughs> yeah. Like, it would be a different kind of experience because we wouldn't be doing it for an audience. But, you know, this is it's fun for us and that's why we do it. So, yeah. And uh, yeah, we always appreciate you guys listening and coming along for the ride. Uh, so thank you, Daniel. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, we'll be back when we're back with Freaks. Play, park, scene, dark, silvery moon is shining through the trees. Cast to me, you, sounds of kisses floating on the breeze. Act one, begun, dialogue, where would you like to school? My cue is you underneath the silvery moon by the light of the silvery moon. I want to My honey, I'll croon love's tune, honeymoon. Keep a shining in June. Your silvery beams will bring love dreams. We'll be cuddling soon by the Of the silvery moon To my honey I'll croon Love's tune Honeymoon Keep a shining in June Your silvery beams will bring love Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>